Hello, hello. My name is Shirjil Naim, and welcome to the very first episode of The Helping Hand. For those of you who don't already know, The Helping Hand was ultimately created to spread awareness of and support Canopy, which is the only refugee resettlement agency in the state of Arkansas. Our guest today is Hannah Lee, the Director of Community Engagement at Canopy, and a person who most helped make this podcast possible. Welcome to the show, Hannah. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. All right. So I would say let's begin this episode by uh, asking you a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in refugee advocacy. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I um, am actually originally from Georgia, which is where I grew up. So I'm not a native Arkansan, um, which I have discovered a lot of folks in Northwest Arkansas are not native Arkansans. We're all a lot of transplants, which really makes... Northwest Arkansas, a lot of fun and, and really diverse and eclectic. But I, so my background is actually in international psychology, organizational development, community development, and trauma psychology, which is a big mesh of things. But really that has led me to work across various nonprofits where I'm able to work with, um, you know, folks in typically marginalized communities. And so before I came to Northwest Arkansas, I actually lived in a very small rural Appalachian community in Southwest Virginia, where I worked with kiddos in the foster care system. And so it was a very resource poor community. And so I got to I ended up doing a lot of advocacy in that role, which I wasn't expecting. And so I kind of from that experience learned how important advocacy is in relationship with um, community organizing, right? So advocacy is really that policy change piece where you're really getting on the policy level. And I think it's so essential to the community organizing piece. And so when I first heard of Canopy, I've been a big supporter of Canopy since, you know, it was founded in 2016. I realized that was something that Canopy did so, so well was the community organizing piece with the advocacy piece. And so that kind of got me interested um, in being a part of this work because I think it's so effective and impactful. Um, And then just I've always sort of had a desire to work with folks, like I said, in a marginalized community and refugees are absolutely marginalized, especially, I mean, just the refugee global crisis continues to grow. And the last four years, the refugee resettlement uh, program has really been sort of dismantled. So you've been, you've had a lot of experience working with marginalized communities, it seems. Mm -hmm. Yes, I have. I've gotten to work with folks from various types of communities, you know, a rural Appalachian community uh, versus uh, the refugee community in Northwest Arkansas looks quite different. Um, But there's still a lot of commonalities as far as being marginalized and vulnerable. Okay, okay. Yeah. um, I think people tend to forget a lot about how vulnerable like refugees and other they're kind of invisible people when you say Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think a quote I absolutely love talks about a lot of times we talk about vulnerable folks and marginalized communities as voiceless. And really, they're not voiceless, right? They have voices, they're talking all the time. But the way that our policies are structured and organized in the US specifically, um, since we're, we're talking about the US right now, is it creates 
these barriers where we can't hear them, right? So I think that's why policy change is so important because it focuses on those barriers to make sure we are kind of getting into those root problems so that these folks who are talking all the time, we can actually hear them. And so I think that that's a different way of thinking about marginalized communities. And I think it's a really empowering way to think about it. Hmm. Yeah, that's, it's a lot to think about, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> so we've talked about you and about your history a little bit. Could you tell us a bit about the history of Canopy? And you told us that it started back in 2016, correct? Yes. Yep. That's correct. Yeah. Um, for sure. Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, Canopy started in 2016, like like we talked about, and it was a group of Northwest Arkansas residents. Um, they came together after seeing, you know, all basically in 2016, it was the height of the Syrian crisis um, as far as the news cycle goes, right? So the Syrian refugee crisis is still very much happening. It's still very much going on. And, um, but in 2016, that was when it was really sort of like at the height of the news cycle. So that's when everyone was talking about it and hearing about it. And so this group of NWA residents got together and said, okay, well, what can we be doing better and how can we help? And that's when they realized, oh my goodness, Arkansas actually doesn't have a designated refugee resettlement agency um, in the state. So there were like little, there were, um, you know, Catholic charities in Little Rock. They were able to do some family reunification uh, connections with refugees, but it was a very small number, like five or six a year. And so that's how Canopy was born, was just a group of residents who who cared about it and wanted to do more. You know, what really surprises me is that Canopy was founded during 2016, which I don't want to have this show affiliated with any political party, but a certain election was happening that kind of spread like a huge wave of bigotry against anything that was deemed, quote unquote, un-American. Mm-hmm. And, you know, especially from where we are in Arkansas, we're not in, you know, the friendliest place for people like refugees, you know? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so like, honestly, how do you think like such a thing was even able to be possible? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. And I think it really goes back to Canopy's views on advocacy and the way that we talk about it. And so we are very, very strategic and intentional about all of our advocacy being bipartisan um, or nonpartisan, which is very, very difficult. It takes a lot of work and intentionality to make it that way, especially when we've been living in such a hyper-partisan nation the last several years. Um, and so really we kind of had to, to get to the heart of, of refugee resettlement and actually, you know, at the heart of refugee resettlement, it's very, very bipartisan. It's nonpartisan. And historically it's always been bipartisan. It's always enjoyed bipartisan support from Ronald Reagan to George W. Bush to president Obama, um, you know, it's, it's really enjoyed this sort of, yeah, part, partisanship, bipartisanship. And so um, 
being able to sort of strip away all of these political pieces of refugee resettlement and just talk about the heart of it and that these are human beings and as fellow human beings, um, we have an obligation to sort of reach out and, and help how we can and provide a safe home. That was, that was a way that we were able to really communicate about it. So we really stay away from the hyperpartisan speech because we truly believe refugee resettlement is not a political issue. It's a human issue. Um, and so that's how we talk about it. Exactly. Like there's so many things in this country that are most definitely not political, but because of how you said how like we're extremely partisan, we try to make everything into a political issue. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, refugee rights are unfortunately included in that. Mm-hmm. Yes, unfortunately, as is immigration as a whole, um, which is extremely unfortunate. And yeah, I mean, just it, it just sort of speaks to how important rhetoric is, right? Like when we talk about human beings as anything less than a human being that rhetoric is so damaging and it has such huge consequences so it's been interesting to see sad how like this country was a country of you know like refugees and and, mm-hmm. and like other immigrants but i think we've always been anti-immigrant to be honest. like i know there were like political parties in the past that were entirely centered around not allowing immigrants into the country i think they were called the no nothings and then that narrative has obviously been passed down mm-hmm. yep it is really sad but let's go to something a bit more positive then shall we so yeah. <laughs> what does canopy seek to accomplish like what are its goals yeah so that's, that's a really good question so our mission is to create a community here in northwest arkansas where refugees are welcomed and equipped to build new lives here in Arkansas. So um, that's our that's at the heart of what we do, right? And it's in a mission statement, as all mission statements are, it sounds very clean and like, oh, that's pretty easy, you know, pretty straightforward. But it's takes a lot of different work, a lot of different pieces go into that. Um, so when a refugee comes to the United States, they've gone through a very long process to even be approved and to get here. And when they get here, they arrive with the clothes on their back and, you know, a bag, right? And they have to build a completely new life um, in a new cultural framework, right? So it's not just moving from New York City to Arkansas, which would that would be a shock, right? (laughs) Or, you know, if I moved to New York City right now, I would be like, what in the world? I'm like a little, you know, Southern girl in New York City. It would take a long time for me to adjust and to feel at home. And English is my native language. I grew up in the United States and it would still take me a really long time to adjust. So when someone comes here from a new country, a new cultural framework, and especially, you know, refugees who are so vulnerable, right? A refugee is someone who's being persecuted because of his or her identity, right? It's not just that they were in harm's way. They were actually being persecuted because of who they are, whether that's their race, their nationality, their religion, membership of a social group. So if they're in the LGBTQ community, for example, um, it's just a very vulnerable place to be. So they're, they're fleeing that. They have to f- leave their home, leave their home country 
start completely new in a place, um, it takes a lot, a lot of work that goes into that. Um, and so that's sort of what Canopy does is walk alongside that process. So you have, you know, we you, you mentioned like refugees, obviously they're, they leave behind their countries that they're, you know, like families have been living in for hundreds, maybe even thousands of years, right? And so they come to this foreign place. Mm-hmm. My question is, how does Canopy manage to help refugees while at the same time respecting their cultural identities and individual autonomy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I love that question. I love that question. I think it's a wonderful question because it's so important to make sure that we are respecting and upholding these different cultural frameworks and also to realize we have so much to learn from their perspectives and to learn about their culture. So a way that we we really try to do that is that we focus on all of our language and, and the way that we sort of work focuses on integration, not assimilation. And it really is a big difference. So being integrated into a community is feeling at home as much as one can, um, which takes a very long time in a new place. It's being able to navigate the system. So understanding how the bus system works, understanding how the library works, how a pharmacy works, how you go to a grocery store, right? Um, It's just making sort of this community your home. A big part of integration is also the language. So Canopy works, we enroll all of our our clients in English language services. Um, So that's a big piece of our integration as well is knowing that language barrier. But we'd never ever want to encourage or or pressure assimilation, which is just losing everything that sort of you came in with, these different cultural aspects and becoming quote unquote, an American, a real American. Because first of all, what in the world even is a real American, right? It's, mm-hmm. there's so many different things that come to that. Main thing is that you live in the United States of America. <laughs> and so we wanna make sure that we're encouraging their cultural framework. So a piece of that is um, we have our, what we're, they're called co-sponsors and they're essentially community mentors that we pair all of our households with. And our co-sponsors are specifically trained to build a reciprocal relationship with all of our families, which means while they're mentoring them about Northwest Arkansas and how to navigate and live in Northwest Arkansas, they're learning from our families, right? It's a reciprocal relationship. So we encourage, we want to eat their cooking and we want to, you know, we want to talk about their stories that they bring from home or just various different, you know, cultural norms and aspects they bring with them. It's very much like how you said, like, we don't, you don't seek to make everybody just like you're like a bland like American if that makes sense like it's you've heard of the difference between like a salad bowl and between like the melting pot right right like I think like the melting pot idea is like okay whatever identity the country finds useful from you will incorporate that into the American identity and everything else can go into like the trash if that makes Mm -hmm. sense you know Mm -hmm. whereas a salad bowl is like America is everything like all the parts of every cultural identity of all the people that live here Mm mm-hmm 
Yeah, I agree. I think that's what makes in the past. Well, see, it's hard to talk about, but I think that's really what makes the United States such a wonderful place to live um, in, in certain respects. Right. Of right. course, it's bumpy along the way, I guess. So to put, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, so speaking about cultural identities, we have a part about individual autonomy. Because mm -hmm. I know a lot of people, like even like myself, right? If I was suddenly depleted from my source of income, I had nothing left with me. And I had to go to somebody like for help. Like I had to like stretch out my hands and beg them for something, right? Obviously, I'm going to feel a lot of shame, right? Mm -hmm. So how does Canopy like manage to keep people's prides like intact, if that makes sense? Like you've heard about like um, give a man a fish, you'll feed him for a day teach a man to fish, you'll feed him for life, right? How do you right. all manage to do that? Yep, that's a, a another really great question. So um, the way that Canopy really works, and this is actually the U.S. resettlement program as a whole, like on the national level, mm -hmm. is the primary focus is self-sufficiency, the primary focus. Our goal is by the six-month mark, okay, six months, <laughs> they will be – financially self-sufficient. Hopefully they'll be self-sufficient as far as being able to navigate the community, as far as being able to start that integration process. So that's sort of at the heart of everything we do, right, is our self-sufficiency piece. So when we first receive our, our households, we get them enrolled in English classes, job club training. So how to like be an employee in the United States, um, what that looks like. And we plug them into employment opportunities, right? We do case management work. So that's getting their social security set up. That's, you know, making sure that they have a safe home to live in. So, and then from there, we work for the next six months, three to six months, depending on making sure that they are able to provide for themselves financially that they are able to call the pharmacy if they need to just kind of have all of these self-sufficient aspects put in. So that's really at the heart of what we do. Oh, go ahead. I'm amazed like how y'all managed to do all of that in six months. So like, that's a short period of time. Oh yeah. yeah. No, six months is nothing, nothing, uh -huh. nothing. Um, like I would assume it'd be at least a year, you know? Yeah, it's, it's not, it's actually, yeah. So under the reception and placement, it's three months, then they can qualify for what's called a matching, a matching grant, which extends those services up to six months. So imagine moving to a brand new place and you're not on a vacation, right? You're not right. visiting. This is your new home, right? You are going to live here for the rest of your life. You have six months to adjust. It's very difficult, very, very difficult. Um, so canopy, so actually canopy extended in, January of last year, January of 2020, we did our, we um, launched our long welcome, which extends those services up to five years because we kept seeing and resettlement agencies across the, the board of the U S kept seeing six months is not enough time, right? Mm -hmm. It's just not. And so that kind of extends these services to be more long-term. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause like, like I couldn't imagine having to like move somewhere and then like the people helping me told me, yeah, we, <laughs> you got three months with us, you know, like after that you're on your own, like, good luck, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
No, I know. That's, I mean, I've, I'm a transplant myself, but you know, I grew up in Georgia and then I moved to Philadelphia and I lived in Philadelphia. Let me tell you, I lived there for a little over a year and I don't think I ever fully integrated and adjusted to living in that big Northern Northeastern city. And like I said before, you know, I'm from the U S right. I'm a white girl. I am from the U S I speak English. I move up there. I still can't fit in. And it would have taken me probably another couple of years to really integrate. So just imagining I moved to a completely new country, cultural framework, everything. Don't speak the native language on top of the fact that I, I had to leave my country because I was forced to, not because I wanted to, not because I asked to, I was forced to, which is huge. Yeah. I, I feel like a lot of people don't understand like the differences between like a refugee and an immigrant, like a refugee is someone that has been forced to leave their land. Whereas immigration can happen for, you know, economic purposes, political purposes, but like anything mm-hmm. other than it was just their free choice. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So a refugee is a type of immigrant, but you're exactly right. It is a very distinct type. It's a force, someone who was forced out of his or her country. Um, Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we will be talking more about refugees in general after this short break because me and Hannah have to uh, chill out a little bit. <laughs> See y'all then. <laughs> Today's featured local business is Designs for Change. Designs for Change creates handmade, personalized jewelry that satisfies your inner artist and your community. Half of all profits go to a different charity every month. This month's charity is Feeding America. To support Designs for Change, or for more info, check out their Instagram page at designs.for.change. That's designs.for.change. Now please enjoy The Calling by Sierra Carson. Change it, writing hate speech on the wall. Since when was love? Con- 
Okay, welcome back, everybody. Hey, hello again, Hannah. Hello, glad to be back. Okay, so uh, if y'all remember before the break, we talked a lot about you know like Hannah's personal uh, story with you know like refugee advocacy, and we talked about Canopy itself. I'd like to uh, move the discussion more to about refugees themselves. I know we've talked a lot about them. Obviously, they're part of refugee advocacy, but. I want to talk more about like how the general public views them. So Hannah, we we talked a little bit about what the general American view is on refugees, but like, how do you think that's changed over the past few years? Do you think it's been positive? Do you think it's been negative? Or do you think it's been both? Yeah, so I would say over the past four years or so, the general view of refugees and refugee resettlement has absolutely grown grown more negative um and a part of that is just again like we kind of talked about the rhetoric that's been used to describe immigration in general and then you know we also have for example we have bans on on immigration on immigrants from from primarily muslim countries so things like that will absolutely cause folks to have this negative perception on refugees and to be afraid of refugees, right? And so a lot of times when we talk about refugees, you'll hear them sort of lumped into scary, illegal immigration um, or, you know, terrorism or these scary ISIS, right? Mm -hmm. And all of that is so, 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 a, it's fear-mongering, and B, it's just so far um, fetched and outside of 
the reality of who refugees and honestly immigration in general, what's actually happening, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I so unfortunately to answer your question, yes, I think I think that perceptions have changed, and a lot of folks have more of a negative view of refugees and immigration at this point than maybe they did four years ago. Why do you think we're so afraid of refugees and immigrants in general? Is it because it's human nature to be afraid of what we don't know? Mm-hmm. I think that goes really to the heart of it, yes. Um, I think that when you really look into or talk to folks who have an understanding of the refugee resettlement process of who a refugee is, you can start to um, break down those misconceptions. So for example, there's this one time, you know, about a year ago, there's an older, an older lady who had contacted Canopy and she was, she's from Arkansas and she was really upset. And she was like, I do not support Canopy. I don't support what y'all are doing because you're bringing terrorism. You're bringing, um, sleeper cells, you know, you're bringing all of these really scary people, these drug lords, these drug mules into Arkansas, right? And I'm scared, right? Or she didn't say I'm scared. The first message was very much like, y'all are the worst for doing this. How dare you, right? So then when I asked this person to sort of have a conversation about who refugees actually are, right? And responded in this way of, okay, I understand that you're upset and and you're angry. So let me just explain, right? Because if you think, if you genuinely think, and a lot of people do, that refugees are bringing um, this sort of, you know, they're bringing violence, they're bringing drugs or whatever you think. If you really think that and you think that they're scary and you think that they're going to hurt your family, it would make sense to be afraid, right? I would be afraid. You should be afraid if that's what's happening. That's not what's happening, right? So I was able to sit down with this person and realize, you know, she's a grandma. She has a couple of grandkids. She's afraid for her grandkids. So when we explain, okay, this is what the resettlement process is, right? It takes the refugee resettlement process in the U.S. is quite literally the safest way a person can get into the U.S., there has never, ever been an act of terrorism in the U.S. from some by a refugee who, who was resettled through our resettlement process, right? It takes about, on average, the vetting process itself in the U.S. takes two years, right? Two years on average for someone to be approved. That means that they're waiting in a refugee camp usually for about two years. A lot of our folks who come to us, a lot of our families have been waiting in refugee camps for over two decades before they get to us. So it's a very long process. It's very thorough. It consists of many background checks, FBI security checks, medical screenings. It's really, really thorough. It's very, very safe. And so I think that at the heart of, like you said, it's sort of fearing the unknown and not being, um, and not having an understanding of what the resettlement process is actually like and how safe it actually is. Do you think, like, honestly, like, with me, like, you know, talking about refugees, a lot of our recent refugees are Muslim, right? And so 
I'm I, I personally am Muslim and I grew up in a very conservative, you know, small Arkansan town, right? And a lot of, you know, most people there probably had like negative perceptions of Muslims and like, you know, of their culture and like faith and everything. Do you think it's mostly just because they didn't know someone that was Muslim? And like, you know, going back to like refugees, you don't, if you don't personally know someone that's a refugee, it's easy to have a negative perception of them, correct? Yes, absolutely. I I think that's a big part of it. And unfortunately, I think that the rhetoric that some of our elected officials some of the highest ele- elected officials in our in our nation talk about refugees, immigrants, Muslims, unfortunately, um, is extremely negative, extremely sort of dripping with xenophobia, right? Of being mm-hmm. afraid of the these people who might come in. And it's just rooted in, I think, a lot of it is rooted in just not knowing, not knowing. Right. Um, not to excuse it. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But unfortunately, I think it's sort of egged on by a lot of our our folks in 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 leadership. Ignorance is not bliss, people. Don't listen yeah. to that saying ignorance is not bliss. Yeah. Right. And fortunately, like I know, you know, uh, when we're recording this inauguration day was yesterday and we luckily managed to um get rid of a lot of the damage that's been done over the past four years. For example, the Muslim ban that you refer to had been overturned, luckily. So yes, we're going to have a yes. round of applause Yes, yeah. But yeah, so I mean, you know, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, wouldn't you say? I think so. I really think so. And, you know, I know this has been sort of a, like... <laughs> A bit of a, we, I mean, honestly, the, the atmosphere in the U S right now is pretty dark. It's pretty hard. It just is. And to say that it's not would just to be, you know, to ignore it. Right. But I think that, yes, I totally agree. There's light at the end of the tunnel. And I think that some of these executive orders that were issued actually sort of almost backfired and showed that there are so many people in the U.S. who don't agree with this sort of xenophobic ideal of, of the U.S., right? And so, for example, in Arkansas, uh, last year, at the end of 2019, um, President Trump, then President Trump, he uh, ex- issued an executive order in which all of the governors for each state had to explicitly consent to refugees being resettled in their state, right? Mm-hmm. And the idea behind it, so right now, as the refugee program, the program has always been since it was founded in the 80s, is it's a national program and governors cannot say, no, you can't come into our state, right? Well, this reversed that so that governors would be able to say, we don't want refugees, which there are so many issues and problems with that, right? So many problems. However, Every single governor, um, except for one, gave their consent. And there were a couple who didn't give any consent or non-consent. Like, I think Georgia, they never said anything. I think they just waited for it to blow over. Mm -hmm. But Arkansas's governor, Governor Hutchinson, who is a very, very conservative, you know, person, leader, he, not only did he give his consent, for us to continue resettling refugees. He went and spoke at a hearing at the Capitol and defended his decision and talked about the fact that Arkansas is better because of 
the refugee and immigrant population and because of the diversity that these folks and these communities bring, right? right? And so that's just a great example of, it's not a partisan issue. It's a human issue. And that at the end of the day, there are folks you wouldn't expect who came out and said, mm, no, we want them here. We want, ref that's what the U.S. is built on. And so I think that that will, I am hoping we'll see more of that over the next four years. Thank you, Asa. You're not as bad as I thought you were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, not, not on that issue, I guess. <laughs> right. So I think for maybe for those of you that are listening and for other people that learn about refugees and it may be kind of a dumb question but why should we care about refugees no that's not a dumb question at all it's a very pertinent question um there are a lot of reasons to care about refugees right i think at the very center of why we should care is just that there are other human beings who are vulnerable the most some of the most vulnerable people in the world and they need um, they need other human beings to, to reach out and help them in their time of vulnerability. And so as fellow human beings, we have that obligation to care, right? We have a moral obligation to care. Again, um, at the end of the day, this is another human being that's being persecuted because of his or her identity, right? And so when you really think about... <clears throat> how vulnerable that makes you, you know, you are being sought out and possibly, you know, you're being persecuted often, you know, folks are trying to literally kill you because of something that is a part of your inherent identity. Right. Um, that just makes you such a vulnerable, vulnerable individual. And so that's, I think that as, as folks in the U S as more priv a more privileged country, as far as we don't we're, we don't have a civil war happening, we don't have militant groups that are actively rising up. You know, oh, <laughs> I, I would disagree with that, but you know, go on. <laughs> At least they were they were quelled quite quickly, I guess. But I I know it's kind of scary to watch that happen. Um, but I think. One, a saying that I absolutely love is if you have more than you need, don't build a higher fence, build a longer table, right? And I think that that's really at the heart of why we should care about refugees, build a longer table. Um, I absolutely love that quote, build a longer table instead of a higher fence. Love that. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. So we've talked about refugees. We've talked about what Canopy can do. And for those of you who are listening to this who didn't realize that we had a refugee resettlement agency in the state, you have no excuse but to support this organization. <laughs> but I think what we'd like to wrap this up, we'd like to wrap up this episode with is how can someone get involved with Canopy and such or refugee advocacy? Yeah, that's a great, a great, great question. And one of my favorite things to talk about Um I think the first thing to do would just be make sure you're following us on our social media pages, you know, our Canopy NWA on Facebook, Instagram. We also have a LinkedIn for all of our professional listeners and check out our website for upcoming events, that sort of thing. That's a great way just to stay up to date with what's happening. 
um, join, sign up for our newsletter. You can do that on our website. Another gr great way to sort of stay up to date with advocacy asks, events that are happening, that sort of thing. Um, and then, you know, if you want to get more involved on the advocacy side, we, we do have an advocacy newsletter you can sign up and that actually sends you advocacy blasts and specific ways to help. So maybe we're doing a call in to our elected officials or we're planning a trip to the Capitol, which we won't be during COVID, but eventually that's the newsletter you want to be a part of to be a part of some of those advocacy asks. And then if you want to be a part of one of the, my favorite ways for folks to get involved, if you're in the area is to be a co on a co-sponsor team, which is that community mentor team. And that is really some of the best, good, really good stuff. You get to make, become friends with some of our families. You get to learn from them while you're helping sort of guide them through Northwest Arkansas and, and how to sort of settle in Northwest Arkansas. So that'd be a way I would encourage folks to get involved who really want to have that hands-on in-person experience and really start building those relationships. Um, and so to find out more about that, again, that's going to be on our website. Just check that out. And there's, there's lots of different ways to get involved, but those are some of my favorite ways. Right. Even with a global pandemic, folks, there are so many ways to work with Canopy. I know for me personally, I recently signed up to become a volunteer with y'all and, you know, went through like a background check and everything. So hopefully I should be starting soon. That's awesome. Yeah. And like, even like, if you can't do any of that, just maybe like, you know, use your social media platforms for good for once, you know, rather than just mindlessly, you know, sharing like giveaways and everything that you're not going to win, you know, just like, <laughs> like, just I don't, like educate people with your social media platforms. Don't stay silent mm -hmm. on matters of injustice. You know, there's mm -hmm. this good quote that I heard that those who are silent in the face of the oppressor are on the side of the oppressor. Mm -hmm. you know? Yep. I love that quote. Yeah. And even like, uh, did you talk about like donating, you know, like you can also donate to canopy and it's, you don't have to donate anything like too much, like anything helps. Anything helps yeah. if it's $5, $2. We actually have a new giving level and it's, I want to say it's $10 a month. It's something pretty, pretty easy to me. And you're part of our canopy neighbors, which means that you get some cool canopy merch. You're a part of some of our inner circles of communication. And so that's a really kind of a fun, you know, giving level, just $10 a month. That's two lattes that you just give to canopy instead <laughs> sounds like a good deal to me <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> well it does unfortunately appear that we've run out of time for this episode hannah thank you so much for joining us today again y'all hannah if it weren't for hannah this show would have never been a possibility thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to come join us on the helping of course hand. of course i'm so excited the helping hand is going to be amazing so thank you for having me it's an mm -hmm. honor Special thanks to Sierra Carson for providing us with today's featured music. Please do check her out at Sierra Carson Music on Instagram. Finally, I'd like to thank all of you for tuning in to today's episode of The Helping Hand. I hope you'll stick around for more interesting content. This is Shergil Naim, signing out.